0: Hello. Hi, John. Dan. Yeah.
1: Hey.
0: Hey.
1: Hey. What's up? Wow, what a surprise.
0: So I uh, I sent you a picture of our, um, our evening routine. Did you get that? You see that?
1: The picture of um, you're watching a, the KEXP performance. Yeah. Uh, me on the acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. We watch that a lot.
0: Kids will, the, kids will ask for it, and I'll immediately shut everything else down to enjoy it.
1: What is, the, uh, what is the, the main appeal, do you think? Well, of all of your live
0: performances that are on YouTube, a lot of them are, I guess, more traditional concerts. You on stage, The Long Winter's there with you. And you're, you know, you're up there. It's a full like concert performance, but there's something about these. It feels more personal. It feels more intimate. It's kind of just you, you know, it's like your soul. <laughs> I don't know. I like it. I don't know. Uh-huh, we just did. Uh-huh, uh-huh. My kids like it too.
1: Oh, good, good, good. Well, I'm glad it's always good to hear that your music connects with people.
0: Yeah. No, it really does. And my they'll they'll sing the songs. They ask me to play them on guitar. I'm not as good as you, but I'll play them. I got a capo, just for that. No, oh, good. They enjoy it. It's a it's a family
1: bonding thing. Well, I'm very kids. flattered, Dan. That's true. Very flattered. Um, yeah. You know, I play music all the time too. Like I your mean, own or other, other do you just music. watch
0: your own performances on
1: YouTube? I don't watch them. No, no, no. I can't bear to watch them, but I do, I do sit and play. I play, play guitar all last. Well, I, I'm going to say all yesterday, not just all last night, all yesterday. Mm-hmm. I, I sent a text out to my, uh, to some guitar buddies. Mm. Um, people that I, you know, I have a lot of different guitar friends. Right. And they, they come from different schools. And, uh, so, I've asked my rock and roll guitar buddies several times, like, Hey, teach me some cool licks. And they always scoff at me. None of them have ever taught me a cool lick. Oh, well, that's not true. Maybe Mike Squires tried to teach me a cool lick one time, but most of the time they're like me. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know. They why
0: just they don't own. want you to know. Cause they, they're afraid of your power. Maybe, you know, if you, if you know more than them, ugh, they'd hate you.
1: Yeah. But last night I sent a text to four people. I, I texted Jonathan Colton, Ted mm-hmm. Leo,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, John Flansberg <laughs> and, oh. uh, Jim and Jim Bogia. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm playing the guitar a lot, but I'm, but I'm trying to unlock the neck of the guitar. It's got a lot of secrets in it. What were the techniques that you guys use to, to unlock the secrets? And Ted Leo was the first one to reply. And he said, I have no idea the guitar neck is still a, a place of great confusion. I don't have any technique about unlocking it. I stare at it and I don't know what I'm doing either. And that is a response that's very much in line with my rock and roll people going, I don't know any cool licks because Ted Leo is an amazing guitar player. His, uh, his, his, and he, he can play any style. So a little bit of a, like, I mean, I appreciate 100% what he's saying. If somebody asked me, I, that's what, that would be my reply. But, um, but then Jonathan Colton wrote back and said, um, you know, and, and we had a, we had a long thread about it where what it, what it boiled down to was that he said, um, he's been playing scales and, uh, we both at the mention of scales lay on the lay on our respective floors and groaned, Mm. but he's saying that he's been practicing scales and then finding all the little shapes in the scales. And I've been trying that too, but I just don't have a, I don't have a very good mind for it. And then Flansburg suggested an app called fretboard learn.
0: (laughs) There's some real creativity behind that name. I'll tell you, like what does I can't, I can't figure out what does that app even do? What would it even do? Fretboard learn. (laughs) I mean, it's confusing the name itself.
1: Just God, what could that possibly do? And, and Flensburg says that what it does is it games it for you so that you don't even, you're not even sitting there with a guitar. You're just sitting on the bus or whatever. And you're watching fretboard learn, or you're playing it, I guess. Yeah. And in the meantime, it's teaching you where the notes are. And then Jim Bogia said what he does is he uses an imaginary capo. As he's working around the neck, he puts a capo on uh, in his imagination, Mm. and that helps him figure out where he is because – he says, presumably, you know, most of the first position chords. And so as you're like screwing around and you're like, Mm -hmm. where am I? Mm -hmm. What the hell is this? He's like, just throw an imaginary capo on. And I do that. But I'm, you know, I'm often, the problem for me is that, especially if you're doing little three note shapes, little triads. Yeah. Those little chords are three different chords all by themselves, you know, out of context, it's like, Oh, well, this is a B major seven, but it's also somehow it's also a D and it's, you know, and it's just like, I, that's the stuff that I just don't have the musical knowledge. So how did you come, how did you come to all that? Because, well, before I ask you
0: that, I'll share the way I learned to play guitar. I, you know, sort of like, I, I told you that story of the, um, the old Martin guitar and how I wound up with that other guitar instead. And, you know, like I learned like three or four chords, you know, G a D probably. And when I started taking lessons, the lessons that I was being, that, that I got were from the teacher at the university. And this was classical guitar. So it was like, it was like the big nylon string guitar, not, I mean, you you can, the closest you get to strumming is like flamenco style with one of those, but that's not what I was learning. So I'd never, I never learned chords. I didn't learn licks. I didn't learn the pentatonic scale. I didn't learn anything like that. I was reading music and learning that, okay, you know, and so although I might have been playing chords or holding my hand in a chord position, uh, you know, I, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. And the teacher didn't teach you that it just these are the notes. These are the fingerings for this combination of notes. And of course, you're never strumming it. You're, you're finger picking, basically, um, with your right hand. So I never built that. I have, a, and of course, there's no fret markings on a classical. So I had excellent knowledge of notes on the fretboard, yet zero knowledge of how to play a single freaking chord.
2: Mm. And so when I
0: got done with this, people would be like, "Oh yeah, it's this such as a scale, just hit a D minor." I'm like, "What's a D minor? What what is that? Mm. Where do you play that?" Mm. I wouldn't even begin mm. to guess. I know ten different places I could play the D note, but what what are the other notes in this chord? And so, right, all of the skills that I had never they what what I did have was excellent, excellent, like finger position and finger strength and picking ability, and an intimate knowledge of the fretboard that turned out all of those things to be basically, other than having good form, none of that translated to the kind of music that I enjoyed or wanted to play. None of it. And what it wound up doing when I tried to make the transition to playing electric guitar is that I could solo pretty well, but just sort of random ass soloing doesn't translate into musicality or something that anyone would ever want to listen to. Mm -hmm. and that kind of led to the frustration, which is why I eventually stopped playing so much. And so for me now I'm coming into it as like an absolute beginner with really, really good technical skills. It's like, you know, it's like if somebody uh, knew how to, how to do anything and everything with every tool that's ever been made, but they've never once, change the oil in a car like it's it's weird it's a weird spot to be in
1: how did you learn oh i think everybody that doesn't everybody that doesn't sit down with uh like a guitar like a um i don't know what i don't know how anybody learns a guitar i learned it almost entirely on my own it came out of a it came out of a. I don't know, what did it come out of? I guess my sister, and her friend Tracy, wanted to start a Duran Duran cover band, <laughs> uh, or not cover band. They wanted to. They loved Duran Duran, and they wanted to start a band, right, in the style of Duran Duran. And you know, my sister is one of those people that like that used to comp- just fully commit. And she loved Nick Rhodes, the keyboard player. And so she went to the music store with my mom and she had a job at a record store. Even when she was 13, 12, Mm -hmm. 13, Mm -hmm. she, she'd spent so much time at the cool record store that Mm -hmm. they gave her a job. And (laughs) Initially they gave her a job just because she was this 12 year old girl. that was in there all the time. And they were like, okay, here's your job. You know, go, go, uh, stack records or whatever, but very quickly it was a, it was a real job. She worked the register and she knew all the records and, um, we're talking about early eighties. I mean, that uh, long before I had a job or had any interest in a job and I didn't care about music, anything like she did, I would go pick her up sometimes. So I was 16 at that point, meaning that she by then was 14. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would show up that she'd be, she'd be closing the store and I would kind of wander around the record store as I do to this day when I'm in a record store, just kind of like idly running my fingers along the records and sort of looking at the little things for sale and just not knowing where to begin, not really having that much interest in the product. Mm Mm-hmm. And she would, you know, kind of every day get off work and take half her pay just in records. Um, Always had an arm load of something, some albums across the whole wide spectrum. Um, I I have her record collection to this day because now she lives an ascetic life in a studio apartment, and so I have this incredible record collection compiled between 1982 and 1985. Every OMD twelve inch, Dan. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> she took the money from the early days of that job. Oh, well, the other thing is, my sister always spends every penny she has, and she bought a Roland Juno one hundred and six, which was the keyboard that sat on the top of Nick Rhodes's little keyboard pile, uh, and it was a new a new product at the time, the new Roland. Polyphonic synthesizer and then her friend, Tracy Gadbury, her father found a harmony rocket at a swap meet and bought it for her for $25 or something, $50. And the two of them got together and, you know, at this point in time, the I mean, what music did I listen to? I guess I had the Beatles. I had some like the early rolling stones and some early who like, I I don't know how it is that my, that I started listening to British invasion music kind of (laughs) in, um, chronological order. Yeah. Most people, you know, they listen to, they start listening to the Beatles and they listen to Sergeant Pepper or whatever. But I was like, started way, way up. Not, not even like just meet the Beatles, but somehow I got my hands on, a vinyl copy I have no idea somebody gave this to me for my birthday or something I had a vinyl copy of some recordings of the Silver Beatles um uh, like early Beatles stuff the mm-hmm. uh, Ham- Hamburg era Beatles stuff and then my friends were all metalheads so they would give me every time I had a birthday or something somebody would give me a copy I had I had ronnie james dio's first album i had blizzard of oz i had um i didn't listen to led zeppelin in chronological order i started with coda the oh, that's last, a weird one to start yeah, with it was very weird i started anyway, I zeppelin have- in, in th-
0: with three no uh, two two Great. two and two, then went course. to one and then three hmm. but two i think two is the entry point for everybody yeah, It is. i mean it is and because three, has it's wonderful all the,
1: that you got to three. You got to three in the third.
0: Yeah, third was the was I mean that album, Led Zeppelin three just has so many great you know, for so many people, I think when they think of Led Zeppelin, obviously forget the stairway to Evan. They're thinking of like Heartbreaker, live and Love and Made, Whole Lot of Love. Like those are all on two. Hmm. And I just I mean like that's to me like if back in the day when we would you know listen to the classic rock station uh that those were like that's how you kicked off the <laughs> the classic rock thing you know but then three you're hit with immigrant song mm-hmm. and you're like yeah and I mean still they use that with thor and all the of his stuff but then like side 2 has like brawn stomp on it and gallows pole and all, this completely different take of them i don't know it's just weird since i've been loving you is and isn't friends yeah friends is on that one it's just so they're it's so different and so weird but i feel like led zeppelin 4 if you were to talk to people that weren't into led zeppelin at all then I think they're feeling Led Zeppelin 4 all the way because that's what has... Like, if if somebody said, I th- I like that one song by that band, is, is it Zeppelin or something? Oh, Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, you want 4. Because it's got rock and roll. It's got Stairway to Heaven. It's got, you know, going to California. And of course, when the levee breaks, which the Beastie Boys sampled. So I feel like that's the album then. And that's Jimmy Page showing up with his Gibson SG, the double neck, you know, so he can do Stairway on it. Like, that's what people think of when they think of zeppelin really right
1: but one uh black zeppelin one knows what people think of when they think of zeppelin i had i don't know where zeppelin falls now like zeppelin was such a huge pillar yeah when we were teenagers like the the pillar around what uh, everything orbited i had zoso written on my converse man i was like hardcore into
0: zeppelin i loved zeppelin
1: but now i don't know i don't know whether zeppelin just sort of is in uh, in young people's imagination well i mean i'm sure there's people that are just as into zeppelin and hendrix as anybody but but in the in the grand sweep of rock and roll history i feel like zeppelin now is like if you like soundgarden and zeppelin you know what i mean like all like they're thrown in with the people that were influenced by them into kind of a general sound that would be called, I don't know what proto proto swing grunge or something
2: mm-hmm.
1: beats beats me. I don't think that they still lord it over all heavy music like they, like they once did Yeah. In, in the way people think of them. I haven't listened to Zeppelin in a long time. And I don't know what would inspire me to, but then at the same time, I haven't listened to anything in a long time. But the way I learned guitar was my sister and Tracy, they had no interest in learning instruments and they got together to play, to, to practice for their big rock band. And neither of them could play and neither of them had any interest in taking lessons. And so I think they bonked along on these things for, I swear Dan, a weekend and then both things, the guitar and the keyboard just kind of ended up sitting in a corner collecting dust. Mm. And this keyboard was expensive. I mean, an astonishing amount of money at the time. And she bought it on a whim, not a whim. I mean, she had to really plan it and figure out what it was and seek it out and, and buy it, but then didn't really ever, ever touch it again. I mean, ever touch it again. Uh, but of course in the way of, of kids, you know, I wasn't allowed to touch it but it sat there in the corner for a long time. And then eventually nobody noticed when I went over and started monkeying with it. Mm -hmm. I was also, you know, we had a grand piano in the, in the living room that my mom played at Christmas time. Other than Christmas time, No one ever touched it. We'd we'd been made to take piano lessons when we were little, but we hadn't followed through on them. Right. And, but at Christmas she would, she would sit down, she'd pull her old sheet music out and she would read, and she wasn't just playing Christmas music, but she would kind of teach herself, teach her hands how to play her Rachmaninoff or whatever theme from the summer of 42 she had a stack of kind of eclectic sheet music that she would spend that month playing. And then when Christmas was over, it all went back in the piano bench and we never heard piano the rest of the year. But when I was alone in the house, I would go sit at the piano and plunk. And I would go plunk on my sister's synthesizer. And then that guitar of Tracy Gadbury's, I started to plunk on it. And that was my friends at school were all learning guitar because they wanted to play living after midnight and they wanted to play, um, stray cat strut and, you know, and just everybody wanted to play bark at the moon. (laughs) And so the guitar class at my high school was, Extremely popular, you know, 50 kids in there all, all sawing away at acoustic guitars in the hope that they'll put together the skills to, to be a, you know, a big star, a metal metal rocker. There was a guy at our school named James Hickey. He was a year older than me and he was fully metal, um, like the most none more metal and he actually like walked around walked the halls with a guitar this was when the rockman first came out the tom schultz rockman yeah and um and he like he had this guitar kind of slung over his shoulders at all times and just like Rockin I heard that
0: zZ it's, top used that to
1: record like an entire album that little that little rockman headphone a lot rockman of people thing. a lot of people used the rockman and loved the rockman that's still around is it still around if you can if you, I think I think so I think if if you can find an old one it's probably really cool and if you can find a didn't Boston I'm use sure. that on their
0: thing too I gotta look that up I thought that was like it the was designed Boston sound. it was
1: designed by by um Tom Schultz of Boston. Right, of it, was Boston. His, it was his little I mean, weren't, side. it wasn't
0: like he, yeah. he his big claim to fame for the rockman was like, I use this to record too, kind
1: of like. Well, he engineered all their records. Tom Schultz did. That was how they got their sound. He was like a genius mm-hmm. of sound. James Hickey went on to become, I looked him up a few years ago. He went on to become like, a very successful like photographer of fashion and rock people. Um, he's very cool. He was always handsome and cool looking and he became like an LA, uh, sort of a, sort of like a burning man, Coachella style, high budget fashion rock photographer who's, you know, probably done, a. Uh, a thousand magazine pictorials of rock people now, but he was the first person I ever knew who like actually talked like this. Like, James Hickey <laughs> actually totally talked like this. I like guess sn- like, snake from the Simpsons
0: premium yeah, dude, just, premium. Just like,
1: He was ready to rock and he (laughs) was totally invested in rock and like ready. And so, so I took a guitar class from, uh, James Hedberg, who was the music teacher, one of like four music teachers, but Hedberg was the one that did choir and vocal coaching mostly, but he also taught beginning guitar. So I took this class and I had this. I had this guitar that had been sitting in the corner that Tracy Gadbury bought. And I sat in this class and everybody was sawing away and we were all learning green sleeves. I'm not sure what we were learning. And James Hickey was over there and he had a Les Paul and a Rockman (laughs) and a little amp. And we were all like, At different levels. I mean, some of the guitar kids knew how to play the guitar, and some of us were just clunky, clunky, clunky. But I learned kind of how to swing my arm and how to play the the basic four chords. And then I just was cast out into the into the wild. And honestly, Dan, I didn't learn. More than I, you know, I learned the 10 chords that there are, by which I mean A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and how to make the minor version of like three of those chords,
0: right? Like, e, e, you probably the minors, and you probably have to know a couple flats in there back then, right?
1: Oh yeah. Okay. So let's say the 20 chords because somebody taught me how to make a bar chord, a basic bar chord that I could move around and I could do a flat. I could do a, a minor, E minor, D minor in the basic chords. But to this day, I don't, I couldn't tell you how to make a, C minor in base, in the, in the, like root chords. I don't, I know how to do it. I said D minor. I don't, I'm not sure I know how to do a G minor. Maybe I could work that out. But like some of the, some of the, I did not have very much sophistication. I could make a, a seven. I could make an A minor seven. But I don't. I couldn't make any other uh, seven chords or minor seven chords. But I but I figured out how to do it with bar chords, and then that was 1986, probably. By the time I knew all that stuff, and then I I basically didn't learn anything new until. Four months ago. I mean, it's an exaggeration, but the that entire time I've just been not even self-taught because the stuff that I've learned, I can't, I can't say that I, that I taught it to myself so much as like, I guess I did stood and watched somebody do something and go, what is that? What are they doing? And then right. went, go home and try and figure, figure it out and never could figure it out. But in the process of trying to figure it out, learned something, stumbled on something and went, Oh, well, that's interesting. I mean, there's so many things in my songwriting that are a direct product of trying to figure out what somebody else was doing, failing utterly, but, but learning something and not, and Not even being willing to put a name to it, mm-hmm. I never learn. You know, I would learn a trick or I'd learn a, a shape, but I wouldn't even then say, "Okay, what is that called? What is is what is this shape, or what is what does it make?" I would just see the shape, love the shape, and then start immediately working on trying to get from that shape to other shapes, but never knowing w- what key I was in whether that was major minor seven, nine didn't, didn't learn any of it. I just, I just would put, I would put shapes into my little collection of shapes and then work on getting between them. And in the process of getting between them, I would get little, little riffs would happen because as I would, I'd be making the move, I would, I'd hit something wrong and I would go, Oh, that sounded cool. Like, and then try and do it and figure out little little passing riffs and little little things, little signatures. The one thing I did teach myself was how to finger pick first inside, outside, last. Mm-hmm. And I worked on that. And that would have been That's the foil method for those who are not familiar. the foil method. Mm-hmm. That that would have been in the Late nineties, I think I, I, I wanted to learn it. And somebody said first, and somebody said foil and I was like, okay, I can do that. It's just a mantra, you know, first inside, outside, last. And, um, and so I did it until I could do it, but I never learned Travis picking or claw hammer. I couldn't, I can't do any other style. I just do first inside, outside, last still. When I lived in New York briefly in 1991, a guy I was hanging out with there said try and do foil except holding a pick. So the pick is, is, um, the pick gives you all that like extra attack on the low note. And I was like, Oh wow. And I tried to do that for a while and I learned it, but I've never done it live or on any of my recordings for some reason, even though it's, even though it's cool, I learned it, but I don't use it. It never became natural. We would like to
0: say thank you very much to Indeed. One of the greatest challenges that we all face is taking all the information that's available and knowing where to focus. You know what? It's the same problem with hiring. With Indeed, you have to access the largest pool of talent and you can hire the right people fast. I mean, That's pretty cool. Indeed.com, they are the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people and they get them to you right away. Unlike the other sites out there, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need and you can pause your account at any time. There's no long-term contracts, nothing. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsor jobs, okay? Those are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire that you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. So right now, Indeed is offering listeners of Roadwork a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. So try Indeed out, free $75 credit, but you have to go to Indeed, I-N-D-E-E-D, indeed.com slash roadwork. This is their best offer available of anywhere. So go check it out. Indeed.com slash roadwork. I'm supposed to say that terms and conditions apply and that the offer is valid through September 30th. So go check it out. And thanks very much to
1: Indeed.com for making this show possible. So to, I've been playing guitar since 1984. Dan, that's mm-hmm. 34 years. That's a long time. And I just couldn't tell, if you said, go to the guitar right now and, and play a, you know, an E nine, I wouldn't know how to do it. If you said play a minor scale, I wouldn't know how to do it. Just basic stuff. Um, I could, I could futz my way through it probably Mm -hmm. and say, hit notes and be like, well, that's probably not in a minor scale, that thing that I just hit, but like, I wouldn't know what was happening. And that's been a source of kind of embarrassment for me for years, years and years and years. How can I be a guitar player? And for, for a long time, a professional guitar player and not know what anybody's talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd go to, I'd go to a little, I'd be on tour and somebody would say, Hey, come on over. I remember one time the guys in not a surf, And I were in Brooklyn and it was after a show and we went over to their practice space with some other like cool New York people and everybody went downstairs and the cigarettes and the pot and the booze and the like sexy people all around. And, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, I'm in not a surf's practice space. Daniel's not there and and they hand me the bass and they're like let's you know just jam and Ira starts playing and Matthew starts playing and I'm sitting here with this live bass in my lap and people all around and I'm like dum-dum-dum-dum-dum don't I just had no idea what to do where to start even and you know at this point I'd been the bass player in Harvey Danger I was like guy from the long winters and i'm just uh, clumping along on this bass until i could tell that ira from behind the drums was like looking at me like what are you doing like come on get going i was like i don't know where we are i know you're just playing basic rock music here but i have no idea how to sit and jam with you guys i don't have that set of skills and I'm you know I'm good friends with people that could s- jump into that situation and play all night and everybody would have a blast and they'd do that every night like that's how they that's how they take joy from the world right and um and for me I was just like couldn't wait to hand that bass to somebody else and get the <laughs> hell out of there um So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's been part of my low self-esteem, I guess, as a professional musician that it's an example of, of that thing that so many people have that feeling of being a professional or creative
0: fraud. Right. But I think everyone can associate with that at some degree on their, in their own career or whatever they're doing, you know, but I want to point out that. When people listen to you play guitar, they think that you're good and they may not say, John is the best guitarist I've ever heard, but they might say, John's my favorite musician. John's my favorite singer. John's my favorite performer. And maybe, maybe, maybe you're somebody's favorite guitar player too. But it's not like the hardest thing for me back in the old, in old days was realizing that it wasn't a competition. And I realized this when my friend Jason Wilson, um, and I, we used to like kind of hang out in his dorm room and play guitar. And at one point I found out that he was sort of like two timing me, but he had another group of guitar guys that he was playing with. And I said, uh, I said, well, what's the story with, with that? Who are these people? What are you playing? He's like, oh, not for you. It's not for you. And I said, what do you you mean? What are you talking about? And he's like, we just sort of like, we play old like folk music songs and others. I'm like, I would like that. He's like, "Mm." he's like, you're more of like, you play electric guitar and you do lots of crazy soloing and stuff like that. He's like, this is, we're just sort of all just sitting around, like just playing chords and, and stuff like that together. And they had so much more fun than I did doing the stuff that I was doing and none of them were good. They all sucked. They sucked horribly and they knew it and they didn't care. They were having way more fun than I was having being good. You know Mm. what I mean? They were making Mm -hmm. music and I was making something that was, you know, I mean, like it was cool, but you know, you can only play so many solos to, um, you know, some Ted Nugent background song, you know, and before you're bored out of your mind and you don't know what else to do, but knowing chords and being able to even just the basic chords, like you said, the first 10, are you one of those guys though? If you were brought up on a stage and you were jamming with someone that the guy could shout out a chord and you'd like nail it and you'd, you'd get it. Like, are you good like that now? Because I think like if you are, that's, as far as you really, anyone needs to go with guitar. Uh,
1: I would be very cautious about, I've been called up on stage plenty of times, like get out here. Right. Somebody <laughs> threw with a this. guitar, Yeah. And I'm like, ah, like I was, I was standing on the side of the stage when <laughs> death cab played Bonnaroo. Yeah. And you know, Bonnaroo is a huge festival. In in some ways, maybe it's the biggest audience I ever played for because I'm there with, you know, with 80 other people standing on the side of the stage at this, at this, um, you know, monster fest and, uh, three quarters of the way through a song, Ben walks over, you know, like, like locks eyes with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. And he takes his guitar off and throws it to me. And I'm like, what? And all the people standing around me are like, what? And he's like, come on. Hmm. And I step out on this stage and you know, like you could, there's people to the horizon (laughs) in every direction. And I've got like the, the man's guitar. And he runs over and gets jumps on a drum kit or a piano or something. He gets on some other instrument, and they're doing one of their big death cab like blow blow the roof off the place type of like they do the these kind of big epic swelling um, soundscapes. And I think Ben, as he was walking away, was like, "It's in D I I was like, "It's in D," and so. <laughs> I put, I've got this guitar on, you know, it basically like came to me. And so I'm up there like pl- playing indie, uh, just throwing shapes at the thing. And I went over to look at his pedal board. You know, I'm trying to look cool at the same time. I'm mm-hmm. looking through this pedal board. Like, I don't know what's on here. Are, is there, are there delays on this guitar? I don't have in-ear monitors, so I have no idea what sounds it's making. And I was just like, I'm just wailing on this thing, I guess, and just play it in D till the end of the song. I'm sure that the 50,000 people that were watching the show were like, who the fuck is this guy? Mm-hmm. Um, that was ex—that was an extremely confusing moment, but, but that was more like stagecraft than anything. But the times when I've been called up like the other day, two days ago, uh, Ron Heathman died, and he—he he was the original guitar player of the Super Suckers. Um, a guy a little bit older than me, very much a Seattle scene fixture and a punk rock and like punkabilly, rocka rocka rolla, stoner punk guitar player great guitar player and you know he died like i i don't they haven't said but i think it's a od or Mm -hmm. died of drugs Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in some some fashion i mean don't don't quote me on that in the newspaper until they confirm it but you know he was a he was one of us but not one of us in the sense that he's one of the ones that Got to be 55 years old and OD'd. Yeah. But a lot of my, kind of my tight friends were tight with Ron and I wasn't, they were tight with him because they are all jammers, chuglers, um, all those shows. And there, there, there used to be 25 of them a year in Seattle where the show was about. The show was put together because we were going to play. Um, we were going to play all of Zeppelin two at a at a big rock show. Told you. And the the, the good drummers and the good <laughs> bass players and the good piano players would figure out all the tunes, and then from the selection of lead singers and guitar players in the town they would put together these little mini, mini sets. You'd do two or three songs and usually it was a, of a double album and, you know, bass players would rotate in and out drummers, keyboard players would rotate in and out, but really it was about, you know, and now next up, Kurt block is going to do this and he'd get up and he'd do three songs. And then, eh, let's John Roderick's going to get up and play some songs. And we did it all the time. It was, it was a, it was a thing in Seattle and a very fun, it was a very like, it was a real community builder and just fun. We all knew each other. We all liked playing with each other and, and there would always be some, pick some great record. Everybody would learn three songs and then you'd get to spend the night. Um, most people getting more and more drunk and rocking out. I can't. I I can't even count the number of these we did, and it wasn't all rock and roll. You know, I I don't mean like, but it was like sometimes we did a Cure record, sometimes we did, um, you know, there was a lot of new wave in there. There were there was, it was a pretty eclectic group of tunes, and we weren't doing it because somebody died. We would just pick some double album and say this would be a fun night to do. Yeah. But at the end of those nights, and and so. For my three songs, I had time to learn them and I had the lyrics there on a music stand. And we still do this. I mean, this is what we do on the Joko Cruise. I, d- I still do this kind of show all the time. You learn the tune, you got the lyrics there, you figured out the parts, you get up with a really good band who's going to, who's basically going to make it sound good no matter how bad you are. And then, you know, I can sing, I can put on a show. And so you have this like super fun, three songs, you get off the stage and everybody's like, that was a killer, dude. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> but at the end of the night, when you get to the end of these double records and you're basically talking about a night of entertainment that started at 9 PM, what invariably happens is that we're done with the album. Now everybody's heated up. They've all had eight to 12 beers and they don't want the show to end. And so it becomes a guitar toss where the band is playing songs that everybody knows. And they all know, they all know the songs. You're just like, okay, well, every, you know, the next song up is, when the levy breaks and there's going to be nine guys in the room that are, that know every note of the levy breaks or can fake it. And in those moments where somebody's like, somebody throws me a guitar and it's like, come on, get up there and we're going to play, you know, "Jumpin' Jack flash or whatever. <laughs> like I can fake my way through it, but I'm so outclassed and guys like Ron Keithman, Andrew McCaig, Mike Squires is good at this um, Jeff Fielder. There are these guys that in Seattle, in the Seattle rock scene that can just play anything and want to, that's the thing. Like, and I'm, and they're not writing songs. Mostly. That's the other thing. They're not songwriters. Typically they're guitar heroes. And this is it, right? This is their moment. This is where they can really, really, It's not that they're showing off. It's that they are as alive as they will ever be. And when Ron died, there was a little thread among my friends where people were posting pictures of him to uh, this. I'm talking about a text thread, sending pictures around of themselves with Ron over the years. And there's all these pictures of, you know, my buddies like, with their backs against his back, leaning back where they're both, they both have less Pauls and they're playing mm-hmm. some solo with one another or somebody's playing rhythm and he's soloing. Or, and some of these pictures go back to the early mid nineties. And it was another example of like, I was here this whole time. I have been friends with all these people this whole time. I've been on stage with them all. I've been on stages this whole time. I have never, ever stood back-to-back with Ron Heathman with my guitar going. I don't think, you know, if Ron and I passed each other in a, on the way to the bathroom in a club, we would nod. And it's a, there's a part of me that feels like, well, it's imposter syndrome again. It's just like, I'm not really... A rock star by any, by any means, you know, it's, it's, it's just that I put together the right combination of these 10 chords that I know, and then a bunch of words, it's the words that, that I can do that I, that none of those dudes can do. Right. The song, songwriting. The songwriting, but it's the words, right? What do you mean? What do you mean? The lyrics. It's the singing. It's the being able to stand up there and sing a thing that you sing a world into being. Yeah. Right. Because all that music, I mean, it's all so tremendous and so above my pay grade and so like to me, it's astonishing, you know, and at its best, it's mind blowing, but it's very, 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 very rarely otherworldly. It's, it's so, it's so rare that a band and even sitting and listening to completely, um, free jazz. mm mm-hmm where you're like, I don't know where the one is. I don't know what, I don't know what the key is. I don't know what's happening, Mm -hmm. but you know, and then, and then everybody comes back and they're all, they all land basically on the same lily pad after, after six minutes of, of just flying through the ether, which is cool, but like otherworldly, like by that, I don't mean, um, I don't mean like a like an unimaginable other world, but just oh, I'm in another I'm in another world now, not just another space. And the only way that 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 happens, I think, in art is where somebody like puts their put puts all those t- tools together, and I guess puts multiple tools together multiple things, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, segments Mm -hmm. and makes a thing that that's never been there before. And it's, and it can be made out of the same building blocks of like blues jam plus drum machine plus, you know, none of the, none of the component parts have to be particularly complicated. But somehow it's when the, it's when the 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 voice comes in and the the way the construction of the the song supports that voice and um that you're that you really are building a new world and it's not a world that that anybody can just step in right you couldn't you couldn't step into a long winter's song as a great guitar player and just like insert yourself in there somewhere and sit and jam.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, it just wouldn't, it's not possible. And people have tried and, and, um, you know, a lot of those really good guitar players don't know, don't know what's happening in long winter songs. You know, they stand there and go, I don't know. I can't figure out where your one is. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's like a, we're a rock band. It's just basic, simple shit. And they're like, yeah, but you're not, you know, the pattern is wrong or it's upside down or something. So that's the thing, right? You like what I can do is build these little ro- these little rooms or these, these little worlds that, that are separate. And, and yet we're all on the same stages, right? We're all, we're all playing the same shows. And that was, what was so hard about the death cab moment was just like, I'm, you guys are building a, a room over here, a world you're going to throw me the guitar and I'm going to come out and, and play like some blues licks or something. Like no way (laughs) you've got like a a sonic language and I'm, I'm sure I did fine. I'm sure that the people, I'm sure that the guys up at the, at the mixing desk were like, Whoa. Cause you know, that never happens in those shows. Those guys are very serious and, and they don't have guest stars or something. I'm sure when they saw that happened. The guys at the desk were like faders down, like let's, let's, whatever he thinks is going to happen. Now let's, let's just let him, you know,
2: woo. Hey,
0: I'm not hearing myself in the monitor. Can you turn, can you yeah. turn me up a little hey.
1: walk over to the amps and start changing things around? No faders down. But, uh, but that, I don't know. It, it, I feel like songwriting, it's very definitely a separate component. And honestly, I don't know how those guitar slingers look at songwriters. I imagine that all great musicians feel like songwriters are the biggest pain in their ass because songwriters are the ones that are the most fickle and the most dramatic And the ones that don't know what they're talking about, the ones that are, you know, that are never satisfied and guitar players are, you know, they tend to be fun and sexy and easy, easygoing. I mean, unless you're in a band with one, but like just in general, like around the world, they tend to be, you know, swaggery and light, lighthearted. And then the songwriter comes in and brings everybody down with his heavy, his heavy trip or her heavy trip. But you know, without that, without the songwriter, what do you? You don't have you don't have a music scene. You don't have a you don't have genre really. Um. So I mean, I I, honestly I don't know even why I'm talking about it this way because. Again, like it's been almost 15 years since I put out a new album of original material. And I'm talking about being a musician like it's some kind of like, like it's my current status. It's still my identity. Yeah. But it's really not my current status. I should be talking about podcasting, Dan, because that's what I do for a living. I should confine my conversation exclusively to talking about podcasting.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You really (laughs) should. No, I mean, I think it's interesting though, because when you're, when you, you have something that you love, that you do, and that you do well, and that you're kind of known for, and you also have this other thing that you do that you probably also love, and that you're now kind of known for, you don't have to pick. Like you just do, you do both. You do either. You do whichever you like. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm going a little crazy. I think stir crazy. Yeah, are you going stir crazy? Yeah, I hate it. Uh, are you Are you hating it? Don't you? <laughs> aren't you seeing the same things that you always see? Don't you go to the office every day and you see Hattie and you go out to lunch at Whole Foods and then you come back to the office? Like, how different is your life now?
0: It's Significantly different. I mean, it, sometimes you know we're both here in the office, um, but you know it's it sucks because. It's like you can't go and do the simple things that you want to do. Even like, no, I don't go to Whole Foods to get food anymore. Um because like I don't want to do that now. But it's like anything any of the enjoyment that you took for granted for so long that's gone now. Like the idea of just saying to a friend, "Let's meet for coffee today." Can't do it. You can't do it. You can't just see people, you can't go out and every time I watch a TV show or a movie, And there are people in, in big groups or at restaurants hugging each other when they see each other. I'm like, like that stupid crap that for my entire life I did without ever thinking twice about it. You just can't do that anymore. And everybody, every, everyone I know, every single person that I know has either gotten engaged or broken up everyone. I don't know anyone who's just in the same, the the relationship is not affected by it in some way or another. It's like every day I'm hearing, I just heard today a longtime friend, she and her husband separated during COVID. I know another couple that just got engaged. It's like the weirdest thing. If they were, and these people were together 25 years. I mean, it's, you know, but like it it's everything is being affected by it. Everything is, everyone is affected by it and it sucks. And it's like, just these basic things that we used to do and that we used to enjoy, and the way people's attitudes toward each other—everyone's the enemy now. Like you know, you you're walking up the stairwell, and like there's someone at, at the top, like looking at you, like you're you know a walking plague. Because they don't you know they don't want a chance an out an outdoor staircase. Both of us wearing masks. They'd well you go first. No you go first. No you go first. You go first all right, I'll go first. Okay. And they just watch you like, okay. You know, like that's what we got to do right now, but it just sucks. It like makes everything difficult. And for my kids, it's absolutely miserable because they've started virtual school and they absolutely hate it. And the school is really good and they're doing the best possible job that they can do. And they're really like, they're doing everything right and the best that they can do. And it still sucks. And they still hate it. Like my boy got on, um, into, into class. I think this was yesterday. One of the classes because he's in middle school and they quote unquote switch classes in middle school. So they have to keep joining these different zooms. And one of them, the, there are some kids that decided to go to school, the school he goes to, you can choose if you want to be virtual or go in. So that's about a 50, 50 split. So the teachers in the classroom, And they're giving the lesson, but the virtual kids can't hear anything from the classroom. So my son writes on a piece of paper, something like, we can't hear you and holds it up to his, um, holds it up to his screen. So the teacher will see it because they have other virtual students muted. So of course, zoom flips the image. So it's backwards and the teacher can't read it. So he takes a picture of the piece of paper with his other iPad and holds his iPad, reversing the image, holds his iPad up so that the teacher can read it. And finally they fix the volume. He missed half the class because the teacher wasn't sure. and it's like this is a really good teacher and it's a good school. Like, but little things like that are happening and it stresses them out so much and they hate it. And it's like it's middle school's hard enough without this crap. It's it's just completely screwed up. Everything is completely screwed up. And it doesn't need, you know, it never needed to be this way. That's the other stupid part of it. It's, it's the stupidity of people, not a person, right? People are smart. A person is smart. People are dumb. And it's people as a whole. I went and, and I was picking up a, a dinner not too long ago. And you know, I, I went in there to pick, to pick up the dinner and this restaurant was doing like a 50% capacity outdoor seating kind of a situation, but there were so many tables of people that had like six, eight people or more sitting around the table, mass off eating. I'm like, this is, this is why people are still getting sick and people are still dying because y'all going out to eat dinner. Was more important, and I guarantee you, someone one of those people was sick. This is the odds; there's probably someone in there mm. sick, you know. And it's it's just super super frustrating. And yeah, at least I have somewhere to go a couple, few days a week to to record and and to get out of there. But it's just it's just maddening. And I'm lucky that I have that, you know. Like I have my own little private office that I can go to. Where I, you know, I can escape for a little while, but you definitely find out if you like the people that you live with. I bet. One of my friends was telling me that, um, you know, that, their that their roommate is a pilot. And so they barely, their pilot is traveling all the time. He spends, I don't know, three, two, two and a half, three weeks a month traveling as a pilot, you know? And I'm like, well, how do you feel about a guy who's like directly in harm's way now? He's like, well, I don't, yeah, I make sure I don't see him at all when he's home. But it, it's like that kind of modification to your life. It's everyone's making these huge modifications and nobody wants to. And And if all of us just did it right for like, what, two weeks, we'd be fine. Everyone just needs to do it right for like two weeks. stupid.
1: I feel like I'm starting a two week quarantine right now.
2: Oh yeah.
0: Where you do feel like you might've been exposed or something.
1: No, no. What we want to do is, um, you know, my birthday's in September Mm -hmm. and a few years ago, I think my family sort of established that, the way they were going to celebrate my birthday is that we would go get a house somewhere on the edge of somewhere and, and, uh, we'd all be together in the house. And I don't know why my birthday became the, um, the, the thing we were organizing around. I think it's that it's in September and September is kind of a nice time. You can, you can go away for four or five days, uh, the temperatures are cool. The, the, um, the high season's over. We're not, we're not in school deep enough yet that that anybody cares what happens to a third grader the first week of school. Um, and it's been nice. We've gone to some, you know, we've gone to some nice cabins, ride bikes, but this year in order for my mom to come, my mom has continued to wear a mask and practice social distancing with us, her own family. And she's teaching my daughter two days a week. She's here at the house now. She mm-hmm. teaches, uh, she's teaching my daughter grammar. And, um, but they sit outside 10 feet apart wearing masks and working on their grammar books. Right. But we want to go, we want to to be able to go together out to this cabin. And what that means is we've been social distancing with her for five months now or more, however long it's been since March 10th, or I guess my sister put my mom in quarantine like March 1st or February 27th. You have
0: to, you have
1: to, but for us all to be together, we all have to, right now basically go into a shutdown, which isn't that hard. We're already in a shutdown. We just have to be mindful of just eliminating all possibility, um, so that we can all share a house somewhere in, uh, in the middle of September. So the, you know, the kind of, kind of endlessness of this. Yeah. Even though I'm extremely lucky in that I'm not forced to interact with people. I don't want to. And I've got outdoor space I can go to. I went on a long walk, Ben Gibbard and I went for like a social distance, bro walk yeah a couple of days ago yeah we we both put on masks we went down to a cafe where we know the guy that owns it got a coffee started walking and we used to do this all the time and actually the mask kind of helps because ben used to be kind of shy about walking through town because we would always get stopped by oh A young person, but now he's got a mask on. So even, even though a lot of that was just sort of paranoia, like it's not like, I mean, Seattle's very cool. Nobody's going to mob you. It was the ghost of Kurt Cobain. Nobody would mob him. Seattle's too cool (laughs) for that. But the mask just (laughs) makes him feel less Uh self-conscious. Makes, you know, it makes everything just sort of everybody's anonymous all the time. The only person, people that aren't anonymous are the ones that are walking around boldly with no mask, but we ended up walking 20, uh, 20,000 steps, however far that is just talking and strolling. And it was nice. It was a little bit of, it wasn't just hanging out with a friend. It was like being out in the town, people walking around, going places, things happening, everybody wearing masks it's obviously shut down a lot of places are boarded up but it was good for me to get to get that exposure to just regular normal regular abnormal normal mm-hmm. because for weeks Dan i I wander around out here in my new suburban neighborhood and Don't see anybody that I know and don't, um, stop to talk to anybody. And, you know, I must stop to talk to her. Oh, just Uh randoms everywhere I go. I'm just like, Hey, what's, what's going on there? Look at that dog. And pretty soon spend 15 minutes sitting and talking to strangers and all of that is gone. And honestly, I'm, I'm fine with it, but I'm starting to feel myself crack up a little bit. Um, from what you're saying, just the lack of, the lack of options, the lack of, uh, alternatives. Right. I don't get to go to New York for a weekend. Mm -hmm. I don't get to go to a restaurant even. Right. And I'm fine with it. I rejoice in it, but, but it's in my head in a, in a weird way now that, that it wasn't before when it felt like, I don't know, it feels like everybody was excited about the quarantine for the first six weeks. Yeah. People were like,
0: oh, now I finally get to just chill out and do this stuff at home and work from, from home isn't bad. And I'm, I'm not an extrovert anyway. This is perfectly fine. And now pretty much universally everyone hates it.
1: Yeah, it's really strange. I don't want, I don't want the world to go back to what it was, but you know, I was talking to a a friend yesterday that is, um, like a mega, mega, mega introvert, just the most introverted person I know. And I said, boy, you must be enjoying the quarantine. And she said, no, I hate it because I want to go back to work. Work is where I get any human interaction and I like it at work because it's it's ordered and mannerly and dependable and I have my space and they have their space and we have reason to interact and there are rules. And so work is like wonderful for me. I can't wait to get back and it's it's killing me not to go to work. She said I've gained 20 pounds I don't know how to, cause I don't have, I don't have the skills or the interest to have like a social life. I never have people over to my house. And so I'm like desperately alone now. And it was the opposite of what I expected because I, I just assume that the more introverted you are, the more this quarantine isn't affecting you. Right. Right. And, and to realize like, oh no, no, like maybe, maybe it's, it's really taking a toll on introverts in the same way that it is extroverts because the system, it's just system that's broken mm-hmm. and they all had systems. Part of being an introvert is figuring out how to have a system that works for you. And especially God, if you're in a relationship where you've got a system worked out, where you see each other just enough. But not too much. And all of a sudden, you're seeing one another too much. Ugh.